Hi, and thank you for listening to The Green Majority. Astoundingly, it is Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. And we are broadcast out of CIUT 89.5 in Toronto and are syndicated on many local community radio stations around the country and are also available on whatever podcast platform might suit you. I am David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. And we're your Green Majority hosts this week. Well, every, every week, but <laughs> also this today week. as well. <laughs> also this week. We're going to get into some environmental news, as always. And then Stefan is going to interview John DeNino, the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, about the need for an intercity public transit plan in Canada. And then he is going to interview Farrell Warner from the Solutions Journalism Network about how solutions journalism supports climate action. But first, Stefan is going to speak with Lauren about several developments in oil. Yes, today was a day. And by today, I of course mean Wednesday and not the day you're listening to this. But Wednesday, May 26th, was a truly terrible day for oil companies, which means it was a great day for us. Number one, Shell lost a court battle today that has led a Dutch court to order it to cut its emissions both deeper and faster than they had planned. They they previously said they would reduce about 20% within the decade. Uh, This court has now required them to cut it by 45%. And, quote, The ruling applies to Shell and its suppliers and covers not only the company's emissions, but also the emissions from products burned by its customers. So it's covering the entire scope of these emissions, which is a huge amount more emissions, as you can imagine. Two, BlackRock actually did a thing. And I I shouldn't give all of the credit to BlackRock. In fact, they only deserve a small amount of credit for this. But given that we've covered them previously about how it has talked a big game, but we actually haven't really seen this translate into their voting as shareholders, this is still big news. They took a step in this direction uh, towards that change this week with the decision to back three of the four climate activists who were put forward as potential members of the Exxon 12-member board by a small fund called Engine One. And this so scared Exxon uh, that they paused voting on on Wednesday, uh, the day they're recording this, and vote counting is still ongoing, but we know for a fact that at least two of the four have been voted in which means that there will now be at least two climate activists on the Exxon board because of the work that that Engine One was doing and then supported not only by, of course, BlackRock, but a, but a number of other investors. If the court case did not scare uh, these oil companies enough, the fact that shareholders are taking this so seriously certainly will, which brings me to the third point, which is the third thing that happened today was that 60% of Chevron's shareholders have voted to force it to account for scope three emissions, which again is the emissions of that have come from burning that fuel. So we are seeing oil companies more and more commonly having to be held accountable to their entire emissions, not just upstream, which we have been complaining about on the show for a long time. And also in two of these cases, it's the shareholders themselves that are pushing these changes. So my question to you, Lauren, is do you think that this is a turning point towards the, you know, the s- slow demise of big oil? I'm hesitant to like make big, wide sweeping statements. Like I saw a tweet today. I always say I saw a tweet today. I'm on Twitter all the time. But, um, and it, and it said, it's like, I hope that like March or May, oh my God, we're in May, in May, 2021 will be seen historically as like this big turning point for climate action and for like the demise of big oil. And I'm hesitant to make any sort of like big historic sweeping statement like that, not least of which, because it's like kind of like cheesy, but this does seem to signal that that finally big oil is actually getting that reckoning that we've known has been coming that we've that we've wanted to see sort of materialize for for a really long time um this is exactly the kind of like payoff for act like um heavy hitting activism that that we've needed to see and wanted to see for a really long time i mean i, I feel like all the time when we're talking about like 
how the climate battle is being fought. We don't need to focus on individuals. We need to focus on those like top 100 companies that are responsible for 71% of emissions. And like these are, um, if you're looking at Shell and you're looking at Chevron and you're looking at, um, what was the third one, Stefan? Sorry. Uh, Shell, Chevron, and Exxon. And Exxon, thank you. I kept wanting to say Esso, which is a, a gas station <laughs> chain here in Canada, <laughs> not Esso. Um, Shell, Chevron, and Exxon, th- those are those are three of the biggest heavy hitters in the entire world. So the fact that they're sort of um, having to come to church today with these with these big shifts is really really exciting. And I mean, like, yes, none of none of these individual actions on their own is, is that is that silver bullet is that saving grace. Because like, if you're looking at this 45 percent reduction that Shell is being called to make, it, the word net is in there, and it's it's like a net. Uh, it's it's it, they need to reduce um, by net 45 percent. Which, which is always a little bit confusing. And, and it says that they're sort of being given like creative agency to reduce however they see. So, so when you get words like that, when they have that sort of that creative agency and it's net 45%, that, that raises a little bit of um, an alarm bell in my head um, about sort of like creative accounting and offsets. Um, but that being said, this is still, these are all incredibly exciting changes to see. And I mean, like, these are the types of changes or these are the types of um, shifts that I I could only dream of happening in, in Canada. I mean, obviously this was done by a Dutch court, not by Dutch um, parliament necessarily, but like we can barely get Trudeau or Wilkinson to like utter the words manage decline, let alone um, outwardly support a policy like this or or a ruling like this. Um, So if this is the sort of thing that we know is possible and that, and that can is, is, able to be pointed to, um, by painters. Um, obviously it's like, it's, it's, it's really going to contribute to momentum, um, different campaign ideas. So I, I don't know, I feel like somebody, I'm sure somebody already is, but I would love to see a campaign exactly like this, um, in, uh, in the case of Royal Dutch Shell being launched against a similar Canadian, um, oil and gas company. So, um, yeah, obviously again, hesitant to say this is the sea change, but really, really exciting. Nonetheless, a, a good day, a good day, a good day. Yeah. And I, and I totally agree. I think this also speaks to the power of a diversity of tactics, you know, in that this is not just shareholder activism. It's not just going after oil companies. It's not just going, taking them to court. You know, it's also pressuring financial institutions to sort of withdraw some, because like some of the changes that happened with Exxon it was also because of one a leading advisory firm for financial services also recommended for voting for Engine One's nominees earlier this week, and so what we're seeing is, a if no single tactic is necessarily better than any other ones, except of course for you know let's take on these you know big institutions rather than just trying to pick up litter, um, but that also that we can see these victories ha- come. It, it can begin to feel like you're actually sort of surrounding these these companies and sort of really pushing for change in all angles. And I think that's also what's exciting for me is that this wasn't just an example of one tactic working. These are multiple tactics having influence uh, all at the same time. Absolutely. I feel like it almost sort of plays into a bit of a conversation we had last week about like, how do you determine where to, where to like um, focus your energy? And I, I know that's a conversation I think we're going to pick up again in a few weeks, but this is a, uh, like this demonstrates that we do need people working within all sectors and from all sides. Um, and it doesn't even have to be part of like a coherent strategy other than that sort of like uh, manage decline, keep it in the ground, fossil fuel phase out. Like that's obviously the overarching goal, but your your way of getting there can, can vary between um, organizations and grassroots groups and stuff like that. As long as your target is ultimately the same, then like have at um, because it's, it's all, it's all starting to pay off because it is part of that. It's like, I feel like years ago when divestment was first getting started up, um, the emphasis was really on the idea of stripping them of their social license. And that's been really successful. And because these organizations have been largely stripped of that social license to mine and extract with abandon, um, it's, it's paved the way for landmark decisions like this to happen and for there not to be an insane amount of blowback. For sure. Yeah. So maybe the, the takeaway here a little bit is however you're currently acting, um, believe in that. If that's the place you feel energy, 
it's it's going to help. It's a part. It's all a part of a bigger movement. Um, and so maybe that's maybe that's one of the takeaways from this day. That is truly a very bad day for oil CEOs, which is a good day for most other people. for some news headlines. The Norwegian Refugee Council's Internal Displacement Monitoring Center has found that 55 million people had to move to a different place within their own countries in 2020. And as Saeed Kamali Degen put it for The Guardian, quote, intense storms and flooding triggered three times more displacements than violent conflicts did last year, as the number of people internally displaced worldwide hit the highest level on record. Three recent studies from the journal Nature. One, approximately $8 billion in damage from Hurricane Sandy in 2012 are apparently attributable to human greenhouse gas emissions. Two, more fires in boreal forests are smoldering all winter long to become zombie fires in the spring. And three, poor people and people of color are more exposed to brutal heat in almost every urban area in the United States. A study from last month in Science Direct found that people living in fracking areas have more heart attacks, and the heart attacks are also more severe. A study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the USA has found air pollution from food production in the United States causes around 16,000 deaths a year. A study in the journal Science last month found that the toxicity introduced into the environment from pesticides has been increasing substantially over the past few decades, even from the farming of genetically modified crops, which are supposed to need fewer pesticides. A U.S. federal judge recently ruled that the Dakota Access Pipeline, which was built via brutal violence carried out against indigenous people just a few years ago, can remain operating during the long process of environmental review being carried out by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Statistics compiled by the Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse, known as TRAC, is showing that the EPA under Joe Biden is on place to prosecute even fewer environmental crimes than in any year during the Trump administration, and the number of cases the EPA refers to federal prosecutors has been declining steadily for 20 years under every administration. Here in Canada... A report from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives has found that Canadian banks increased the money they gave to fossil fuels by 50% between 2014 and 2020. Various members of the plastics and petrochemical industry, such as Dow, Imperial Oil, and Nova Chemicals, are suing Canada for deciding to list plastics as a toxic substance under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. Mi'kmaq fishers on the East Coast are still being harassed by our colonial apparatus that doesn't want to live up to its own meager standards. The Canadian press reports that a lobster fisher from the Botletek First Nation has had 40 traps seized by the DFO since May 10th. He said the DFO watches his moves and takes the traps when he's gone even though our own Supreme Court said over 20 years ago that Mi'kmaq fishers could legally fish for a moderate livelihood whenever they wanted. Our governments have since refused to define moderate livelihood and have continued our paternalistic colonial rule over the waters. The Botletek First Nation recently launched legal action to get the courts to affirm that government regulations as they stand do not hold jurisdiction over Mi'kmaq fishers hunting for a modest living. 
Meanwhile, a UN Committee on Racial Discrimination has told the Canadian government that it must respond to the criticism that it failed to protect Mi'kmaq fishers from the racism and violence they faced last year when first setting up their moderate livelihood fisheries. The Narwhal is reporting that the DFO also discriminated against First Nations on the West Coast because they warned BC salmon farmers of a bacterial disease in Atlantic salmon last fall, but said nothing to First Nations or the public. The CBC reports that the BC Museums Association is telling all public museums to return stolen First Nations remains and artifacts. Finally, the mosquito grizzly bear's head lean man First Nation has won a $140 million settlement, plus interest, against Saskatchewan for land stolen back in 1905. Never should this country pretend that this land theft is not ongoing. People are often surprised to know that the last residential school closed as recently as 1996, but these land claims are still ongoing. You know, even as people are giving land acknowledgments on this land, it is there are still court cases about how it was stolen, and still significant amounts of, of Canada as a whole is unseated, and no one has received any sort of recompense one way or the other. This is an ongoing colonial project that has to sort of go to stop there. And the only way to go back is to, you know, begin actually returning the land. The other thing I'll say quickly before going to you, Lauren, is just how terrifying the concept of zombie fires are. You know, that they are burning underground for the entire winter to come back out later is just not a thing that I think that the tinderbox that is the West Coast of, uh, of, of North America really needs. And it's sounds terrifying. But to you, Lauren. Some good points were made there. <laughs> I will address them in the order that they're in my brain right now. One, zombie fires. If you want to be freaked out by zombie fires, Google Pittsburgh coal mine zombie fires or Pennsylvania coal mine zombie fires. They've been burning for like 50 years because at some point back when like the mines were open and and, and being used, the, the the veins of coal were somehow set on fire and they've just been burning for decades and decades and decades underground and there's nothing anybody can do about it because you just can't possibly put it out. The only thing they can do is wait for all of the coal to eventually burn. So if zombie fires freak you out, don't read that late at night, but do read it because it's interesting. Um, second thing um, on the uh, mosquito grizzly bears head lean man First Nation settlement is, is um, it brings to mind this idea that like, I know land back and that concept of, of returning land is something that started to be talked about very, very, um, um, not, not a lot, but it's, it started to be talked about in sort of the, the Canadian North of the border, uh, context, but something we haven't talked about as much. And I really think it's, we increasingly have to start, um, discussing it, especially in sort of climate justice oriented spaces is the idea of, of reparations. Um, and I feel like that's one instance in which, um, the states when looking at racial justice is is farther ahead of us on that conversation around reparations. Um, and obviously reparations in Canada would look very different than it would in the United States because um, fundamentally issues around racial injustice in the United States are built on slavery and the idea that, that um, white colonizers brought people from Africa with them um, as opposed to are white colonizers coming and taking land. So, so, so the form of reparations might look a bit different, but I do think we need to start talking about it within that context and using that language um, to sort of help people understand what it is that they're talking about when, when, when the phrase land back is used. Um, just to sort of, just to see there, not a full thought. Um, and then finally, because I, I know that we're running out of time, this is sort of a, a weird hop, but going back to that report from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, finding that banks increased the money they gave to fossil fuels by 50%, um, is just a plug for the CCPA in general. Um, I feel like oftentimes, um, I know I can sometimes feel frustrated that there's like all these fantastic think tanks down south doing really great work about climate justice within the American context, and that perhaps we're lacking that here. And really, we're not. The CCPA is 
always doing really, really fantastic research and putting out awesome publications um, about not only climate justice, but um, about sort of progressive policy in general. So that's always a really good place for listeners who maybe want to get a little weedsy can go to check things out. And for people who like are interested, but maybe don't have like me, the mental capacity for like a 40, 50, 60, 100 page paper. Um, every quarter, the CCPA puts out a magazine called The Monitor that's specifically about progressive policy within the like so-called Canadian context. And they take these really difficult concepts, make them digestible. Um, and it's a really, really good way to sort of, I don't know, raise your awareness and educate yourself on, on these sometimes intimidating ideas and realize that there are really great people doing really fantastic work here um, from the policy side of things all the time. So a little plug there for our friends at the CCPA. Right, and now we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back with Stefan interviewing John Danino from the Amalgamated Transit Union. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace. This is Stefan Hostetter, and I am here with John Danino, the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, to talk about the future of Canadian intercity travel. Perhaps you have heard the news recently that Greyhound is shutting down its operations across Canada. This is the second wave of shutdowns for intercity travel, and there's this growing sense that the Canadian government has to do more. So that's what we're talking about today. So thank you so much for being here, John. Thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here on this really, really important topic. Yeah, I completely agree. So let's start as you are certainly uh, the expert. Can you give us a history of how we got here, you know, from the shutdown of the Western lines uh, to now, and then what it also means for transit here in Canada? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for that. So back in 2018, uh, we were notified that Greyhound was shutting down in Western Canada. From a labor perspective, of course, that affects us individually and our members and good paying jobs. But in 2018, we looked at what was really happening. And what was really happening was, is that Greyhound decided that that service was not profitable anymore for them. Now, we totally understand that corporations are looking at their profit margins in terms of delivering a service, and we respect that in normal settings. Public transit is not a normal setting. Public transit is a mobility right for Canadians right across this country. It services some of our more vulnerable communities, those living with disabilities, the Indigenous community, and far-reaching. And it doesn't just deliver public transit. We know that things like Greyhound deliver medical supplies into those northern and remote communities. They deliver blood and blood byproducts for the Red Cross. Um, so it's another form of lifeline for medical supplies. And what we have seen is that private enterprise is making decisions on putting their profit margins before the people they serve. And this is why ATU Canada has been advocating for a number of years, but particularly since 2018, that we need all levels of government to intervene here. We cannot leave uh, those riders stranded. You know, they depend on it to go to medical appointments, uh, to go to schools, to go to hospital appointments, to see their loved ones, to go to work. 
And quite frankly, we're leaving them stranded. All levels of government have refused to deal with this issue. We speak to the, the province. The province says, well, if it's a national transit strategy, you need federal intervention. You speak to the feds and they say, well, we lost that jurisdiction in the 1950s when there was a court challenge out in uh, PEI, I believe, or, or New Brunswick. I can't remember where it was offhand. So everybody's passing the buck back and forth. The reality is, is that while, while the buck keeps being passed, nothing is happening. In 2018, we met with the then minister, Mark Garneau, over this very issue. And I was reassured by Minister Garneau in his office in Montreal that the deputy minister was dealing with this issue and that there was going to be an update and a report on how they were going to tackle this initiative, getting provincial buy-ins. Well, here we are three years later, and absolutely nothing has happened, and history is repeating itself. Yeah, and arguably getting, well, not, I mean, inarguably getting worse, right? So much more transit has been lost. Correct. How do you see this whole in intercity transit can best be mended? Well, I mean, the best way to mend this is we need to sit down and have some serious, serious dialogue. And we're prepared to go to the table and meet with you know the powers to be and discuss how we're going to get an inner city transit that allows connectivity between province and province and community and community. We cannot have patchwork of transit systems if we're looking at an integrated system. Right now, there is no mechanism for a rider to go from Montreal to Toronto if Greyhound is not there or to go from Toronto to Winnipeg, or from Winnipeg to Saskatchewan. So we really need to sit down and figure out what that's going to look like. And it's going to require some investment by all levels of government on delivering that kind of network. And we have to recognize, again, and we do, but the feds have to recognize that public transit isn't for profit. None of our major transit systems, for example, in Toronto, here where I am, the TTC, they're not geared to make money. They're geared to pay their expenses and provide a service. Uh, and we know, you know, today, Greyhound that just closed up here in, in Ontario, I mean, they were moving approximately 5,000 riders a day pre-pandemic. On the weekends, we were at 7,000 plus. When we got into the special events, like the Indy races and, you know, Carabana, we were seven, 8,000 people a day coming from communities across to come in. That's no longer there. And that's part of the economic wheel that helps support the economy, right? It is one of the most affordable means of transportation. And of course, not just affordable, but accessible. If you're living in a northern community, there may not be a train line there. There may not be an airport if you could afford to take that flight. So we need to get back to the basics. We have a national uh, railway system called DIA. We support the airline industry, which I applaud. But at the same time, we're not looking at supporting that bus industry. And so in your press release, it calls for this action to be part of a Green New Deal. And I'm curious how you see that playing out, both from an emissions perspective and also from an equity perspective. Sure. So look, you know, when we talk about a Green New Deal, obviously, I think we're all looking at the same thing here. We're trying to improve our climate crisis. We're trying to tackle that. We're trying to look at different ways to reduce carbon emissions. Just understanding that one bus uh, is the equivalent of 20 vehicles on the road. So if we have a truly integrated, safe, reliable, affordable transit system that Canadians can depend on, we can take those people out of their vehicles, give them a, a more economical way that it will help tackle that. We can look at transitioning into clean diesel. We can look into transitioning into battery electric buses or hybrid, different ways to use those vehicles. And, you know, creating those jobs and creating that space is creating good green jobs because they're helping tackle the climate crisis. We've seen, when, when I saw Greyhound leaving in Western Canada, I saw minivans, and I won't mention the employer's name, but I saw minivans flying around, taking over for what used to be Greyhound. Well, they had three or four minivans servicing the same route that one bus used to for Greyhound. So, you know, we really need to look at those kind of things. If this government, and if we're serious about tackling the climate change crisis, then we need to get more vehicles off the road 
and replace them with public transit vehicles. For sure. And so if folks hear that and agree, which I think many of our listeners will, given the dire need to get cars off the road, especially right now, how can folks get involved and support this campaign? Sure. So last year, we did an audio documentary that we sponsored. It was done by a young lady by the name of Emily Liebman called Still Waiting for the Bus, uh, The Survival of Inner City Transit. You can find it on our website at atucanada.ca. But we have also started a national coalition of partners across this country who are sitting down together. Now, ATU Canada is not leading this. We're only helping support it. But it was something that I think we needed to do and is bring communities together across the country. And let's have those, those tough discussions and figure out how we're going to apply pressure to all levels of government. You know, we need to lobby our provincial and federal levels of government. We need to advocate. We need to make it an election issue as we might be heading into a, a federal ele- election cycle. And I'm not su- saying that we should support one party over another. But what I'm saying is, is that we really need to take a serious look in supporting the candidates who support the investment in public transit or inner city transit. We've had a number of campaigns that we have run. We have, we've had petition campaigns. We've done some national polling to quantify where Canadians are. And, you know, Eight in 10 Canadians say that it is the government's responsibility to invest in public transit and support that initiative. And our governments are failing. So keep watching our site. Follow us at ATU Canada. We're on Facebook. There's all kinds of initiatives. Our coalition, the Keep Transit Moving Coalition across Canada is up and running. And look for that kind of stuff. And in the near future, we'll be launching a few campaigns uh, to try to bring this to the forefront. Amazing. Well, John Didino, president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, thank you so much. And yeah, keep up the great work. All right. Thanks so much. And now we're going to take a short break and come back with Stefan interviewing Farrell Warner from the Solutions Journalism Network. here with Farah Warner, the Initiatives Manager for Business and Sustainability at the Solutions Journalism Network. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Stefan. Thank you. So if I could start with the most broad question, what is Solutions Journalism and how does it differ from traditional journalism? Sure. Solutions journalism is rigorous evidence-based reporting on responses to social problems. So we're very much focused on deep investigative evidence-based reporting. Where we differ from quote-unquote traditional journalism is instead of being so problem-centered, so problem-focused, which is what the tendency can be in the media, we have a negativity bias in the media. We really focus on the responses to those social problems. So for instance, in climate change, you know, I, I keep talking about we need to move from this apocalyptic, unsolvable coverage that we often can have, or the plans and promises coverage, or the policy discussion, or the argument over does it exist or doesn't exist, and move it to rigorous evidence-based reporting on solutions that are in the field right now. How do they work? What are they limited by? What is their impact? And how does that reporting catalyze communities to take action? So that's really where we stand is looking at the solutions, holding them accountable, and really believing that that work can catalyze communities to take action. 
we're not advocacy journalism, which we can sometimes be branded as. And instead, what I want an audience member, a community member to do is to come away from a story saying, that's really interesting. I need to think about my own behavior and habits, or maybe I need to think differently about talking to my city council. Maybe I need to vote differently. There are lots of different pieces of this. We're not saying that this is exactly the solution. And in fact, we really guard against the concept of the silver bullet, like that some one thing is going to just make everything go away. And we know that in climate, there is not one thing, there are a billion things that we need to do to sort of pull ourselves back from the edge. And in fact, also then adapt to make this earth a place that we can still all live on. Awesome. Yeah. Before we began recording, we were sort of talking about one of the th- issues I think exists is that people don't know about solutions that exist out there because it almost has to do with the word news implies immediacy bias a little bit, right? Like why are we covering something that has worked and sort of solved the problem when something else is burning right now? But of course, if we don't, we don't know what works and what doesn't. Right. Yeah, we call it telling the whole story. We don't think, I mean, we're certainly not against or think that we shouldn't do problem-focused journalism. You know, you have to know what the problem is before you can actually start to think about what the solution is. And instead, we really talk about telling the whole story. You know, one of the areas that we really focus on that seems to resonate with people, and I think it's, I think it's probably true for audience members as well, is this concept of Journalism's present theory of change is that we're whistleblowers and we expose wrongdoing, right? And we keep pointing out social problems in this hope that they'll spur reform. And to be honest, has that really worked for us? Like, are we getting anywhere here? And so what we talk about is moving from that theory of change, which is more of the watchdog, to more of a guide dog principle. And I, I, have, I have a dog, he's not a guide dog but he very much is a working dog, right? Like he wants to take action. (laughs) So we think it's inadequate for journalists to simply uncover what's wrong and hope for society to change. I've had conversations with journalists who are like, well, we're just the people who come in and like throw down the problem and then we walk away. And was like, is that really what you got into journalism for? And this is where important is one, I don't think that that is what many journalists got in this business for. I do think that we came into it, uh, many of us seeking change and to expose things. But more importantly, our audiences and communities are seeking credible responses to problems. They want both things. And that's really where this new research that came out just sort of really corresponds to research that we have done in the past. Some of that past research has really shown that this solutions-based theory of change has a positive impact on news organizations as well as on its audiences. And so in past research, we found that it improves readers' perception of article quality, intention to engage, their readers' interest in knowledge about it, and really boosting readers' positivity. Now, that doesn't mean that we're good news or that we're puff. It's that they believe that there is a positive way for them to take action, because we do know that people are turning away from the news because it's so negative. There are studies, you know, that have been done by Reuters, you know, the Reuters Institute in the UK, that some, something like 48% of people actually turn off the news because it's negative. They're just tired of it. Yeah. So let's take a second to dive into that research because our own experience, honestly, has been the number one feedback we get as a show is, please tell us what we can do. Like, let's talk more about solutions. Let's get more into this. And so you did just complete this big research project on the impact of solutions journalism with audiences. And can you tell us some of those key takeaways? Sure. This was done audience research by Smith Geiger here in the United States with 638 respondents across six diverse U.S. metro areas. And it really looked at, you know, people who were across markets, different media types, age, and even political affiliation. So here are sort of our 10 top takeaways. 79% of people surveyed believe that local news need to both identify specific problems facing your local area and to report on the solutions community members have found to address these problems and that that is essential or important. And I think there are two things there in this takeaway. 79% is a big number in a statistically relevant research project. But what they said is report on solutions community members have found to address these problems. So they were really centered on, don't tell me what 
big business is trying to do someplace else. Tell me what's happening in my own community that I can take action on. Solution stories tended to pull higher in virtually every positive metric. So in helping to make a difference in community, 42% found the solution stories to be to help them make a difference in their community compared to 25% for the problem-focused one. The depth of information was also critical. 41% of those surveyed said that the depth of information was better than problem-focused and the depth of information for problem was 30%. Equality of storytelling, capturing what matters, delivering a fresh approach, all of those were, were really important. I think one that we think is really critical is around trust. So 83% of the respondents said they trusted the solutions journalism story compared to just 55% who said the same about the problem-focused story. And we really know we have a trust problem in the media. People don't trust us. They probably trust politicians and lawyers, maybe potentially more, although you know that you know we change places every once in a while. But the idea that solutions journalism can engender trust in our audiences, I think is really powerful. Almost double the number of respondents said solutions-focused stories are considered uplifting. And we do know that we have a motto around solutions journalism, which we call solutions journalism is hope with teeth, right? You can't have hope without having something really actionable and oriented. And so our last big takeaway is overall 51% of respondents said they preferred the solutions journalism story versus 32% for the corresponding problem focused story. And that's pretty much true across all of the age groups. And particularly, a majority preferred the solutions journalism story for any of the age groups age 18 to 45. So I can already begin to imagine the ways in which this obviously lines up with climate environment, you know, because I would say that we are right now at a place where we are desperate for solutions. And it's such a huge problem that there are millions out there, right? Like, as you said, climate change is not going to get solved by one silver bullet. Nuclear fusion is not going to come out tomorrow and be like, great, we have this energy, we're fine. It's going to be solved by hundreds and thousands of small ideas. And some of them are going to be weird. We covered a story a little while ago about, I believe it was somewhere in Europe, I want to say Britain, actually, where they were using a hill as a energy storage device. They basically pushed all the water up a hill. And then when they did the energy back, they let it run back down. But perhaps you can put a finer point on this. Why solution journalism is so important within the climate environmental context? Yeah, I think this goes to what we talk about, which is, you know, a problem is often seen as unavoidable, right? Climate change was not unavoidable. Well, we've known it since what, the 1850s of what's causing climate change. And in the 80s, we also saw it. So it's not as if we haven't known. But what we say in solutions journalism is that a problem comes to be seen as unacceptable. It is unacceptable that these things are happening. And when something is unacceptable, we can actually hold people to account for it, right? And we can ask ourselves, what are the solutions that are working? What are their limitations? What impact are they having on, you know, are they having on the community? And, you know, and what kind of evidence is there to show the effectiveness? So those are sort of our four core pillars. What's the response to the problem? What is the evidence of effectiveness? Because you can have an instructive failure. You can have a solution story that's like, that didn't quite work, but wow, it points to something really interesting. And maybe a small tweak or a change, somebody will read that and be like, oh, I see the, I see the problem there. If you just fix that, this would work, right? You always need to show the limitations because as we said, there are no silver bullets. And what's really important is around impact. How does this solution impact the community? All of those four are really critical for climate. We are all, 9 billion of us, going to have to act toward climate change, right? It's not going to solely be solved, although yes, it's true. If we can reduce our you know, use of fossil fuels and bring down emissions, that is sort of the giant way to start this process, right? But we know that that's only one part of climate change. We need greener spaces. We need cleaner water. We need more biodiversity. And we need 
more racial equity built into all of these. As we transition from coal and oil and gas, what happens to those communities that have been dependent upon those um, industries? How do we take care of that issue? And so this is a complex, large system that needs to be changed dramatically, probably in the next 10 to 15, 20 years. And so we all have to get behind it. And where I think solutions journalism plays an incredibly powerful role is putting information in the hands of audiences and community members and saying, look at this. You could do this in your own community. Maybe this is useful in your own community. For me, the important thing is really giving people a good sense of how do I, as a single individual, plug into these large systems change, like the electrification of our energy system, right? So what do I need to do to be a part of that? Is that maybe moving toward an EV vehicle? How do I retrofit my home? How do I buy into a solar farm as opposed to putting you know, solar panels on my house? All of those are stories that our newsrooms that we work with, we don't do journalism ourselves. We support newsrooms and journalists around the world to do this work. We're just here as sort of teachers and trainers and database collectors because we run a database called the Story Tracker, which has now, we're probably close to about 12,000 stories on all kinds of solutions. And we do have specific We actually have one really big specific work that we've done in coordination with Project Drawdown, really looking at what are the climate solutions that you can actually dig into right now. You know, a story that just recently was featured is how do you reuse a demolished building? Looking at Switzerland, where they're really trying to construct a building out of reused building materials, because we know that's also a part of climate change. You know, cement is one of the the most incredible uses of energy, right? So we've got all these buildings we tear down, but most of the time we tear them down and put them in landfills. And instead, this is a story about how to reuse all of that. So that's wow. how that's a long answer to a question about how does how does solutions journalism fit into climate change? I mean, I think it requires a long answer because there's so many ways. I will say that cement story and that how to reuse buildings, I think is going to be a huge, huge question because it's not just climate change. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago that comes about sand shortages that are expected, which obviously is a huge feedstock into cement as well. Like solving that question, that would be massive. But along the same lines, the hope is that this is the beginning of a series where we're able to sort of get some more of the solutions journalism folks that are part of your network to come on the show and talk about their own work. But just as a primer, I'm wondering if you have any examples uh, of any great environmental solutions journalism stories that have maybe inspired you or had significant impact. Yeah, for me, there are a couple that I really love. There's a woman who has written for us a lot, who's one of our lead fellows, her name is And she wrote an amazing story a couple of years ago that was around climate resilience. And it was focused on India and the realization by this one state that children were really being impacted by these intensifying storms that are happening in India. But along the line, they also realized they needed to teach children climate and what was happening to their climate. And at the same time, they could give them agency to better understand these storms are happening. Here's what you can do. Here's how you can be more resilient against them. So the solution to that was building actual curriculum that was taught in the schools about climate as well as how to be climate resilient. So that was, for me, a really powerful story of thinking about what's happening to our children in this. I mean, you know, with all due respect to, to Greta Thunberg and all of the young activists, they're great. They keep the issue front and center. And that is absolutely critical for us. Where we come in at Solutions Journalism is one step behind them, which is they've put it out in front of you. Here are solutions. And here are also really important communities to think about because we don't want to leave those communities behind. Another one that I really loved, it was during COVID, but it's about how to use solar panels to power Wi-Fi in remote or rural areas in the United States. So again, not specifically around climate, but layered in there is 
instead of building some new system, this school district said, we can build mobile solar panel units, drive them around to our schools, plug them in, create Wi-Fi, and have these Wi-Fi hotspots that are powered by solar, which is just an awesome idea and could be used literally anywhere around the world. And I know when my electricity goes out, I'd love a solar panel Wi-Fi system. And, you know, and, the, and this is something that's for me is very personal as well. I live in an area of the United States where storms are getting more intense. And in the seven years I've lived there, the number of times my electricity has gone out has gone up significantly because of our changing climate. So there's sure. just a couple of stories. Awesome. And you know, we can make available to you to put in the show notes, Stefan, this link to the work that we've done with Project Drawdown so folks can read it on their own. That would be awesome. I know that one of our correspondents is actually working currently to secure an interview with Project Drawdown to talk about their work as well. So that will dovetail beautifully. So great. Coming to the end of the interview, and I want to give folks a chance to be able to learn more and connect with the work that you are doing. So how can folks learn more and support the work of the Solutions Journalism Network? Yeah. As readers, I think you can seek it out, can look for it. You can ask for it. That's what your listeners did. Like they said, we want more of this. So that's a perfect way to have agency as an audience member is to say, I want to hear more about these stories. And so for us, in terms of how you can support us is you can spend time in our story tracker. And again, I'll make sure that the link is available. Just dig in there and start reading. If you have a Google device, you can always ask it, you know, tell me something good. And that will bring up a solutions journalism story. We are starting to work on how we could support notifications on your phone about solutions journalism. But really, I think it's about engaging with your local news. Go and talk to them. And if they're interested, then you can say, hey, take a look at solutionsjournalism.org, get in touch with those folks, and we're happy to do trainings. We will do trainings with anyone, not just newsrooms. We, you know, we love working with community as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, we look forward to having more Solutions Journalism folk on the show to talk about the, exactly the stories that we're covering to give people a sort of sense of it. And again, as you said, we're an example of telling someone you want this kind of thing. People will listen to their, their readers and listeners and will do their best to support. So reaching out totally works. Thank you so much, Far Warner, the Initiatives Manager for Business and Sustainability at the Solutions Journalism Network. You can find out more information at solutionsjournalism.org. Greatly appreciate having you on and have a wonderful day. Thanks so much. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. It's not easy.